it over to Transformation Station. I do want to just take a, a moment and thank all of the folks that served there in a dedicated way, and in particular, I, I feel led to thank Carrie Lee. Carrie uh, organizes and runs Transformation Station on a day when we're going to be dedicating children later on. I think it's fitting that we take a moment and just acknowledge that for her, um, and uh, perhaps at the end of the service, uh, go over and give her a, a personal thank you as well. Um, good morning. My name is John Reddy. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church, and, and I've been given the privilege of this morning's topic. Now, as if you've been around for a couple of weeks, you know that we've been in a series that we're calling The Best Ever, and it's an important topical study. Uh, we started it in September, and we've been thinking about biblical relationship, what I like to think of as deep relationship. Uh, I think you know what I mean. Sometimes, perhaps, at the Wellington Tea Stop, you're passing somebody by, and you give them a nod, you give them a glance, and you have a moment of relationship with them. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about moving deeper in relationship beyond maybe a once-a-year Facebook acknowledgement. We started our study uh, a number of weeks ago looking at the best friendship ever. And Tanner, if you remember, he, he reminded us that we need to work to be a great friend by recognizing that love, the foundation of it, flows from God the Father. Now, we all need, we all need and we all desire friendship, and, and we should understand that love actually is the driving force that's behind it. And we can be a great friend if we experience God's friendship and then we release it to other people. And then we turned our attention to the best gift ever. We thought for a while about singleness. And again, we were challenged to trust God in our singleness and to serve him with what? Single-minded devotion. For if we receive that gift from God and we submit our desires to him during that season and we seek his kingdom with an undivided devotion, during that time in our lives, we're going to discover confidence as the Holy Spirit comes in and, and assists us in our lives. And the following week, we went a little deeper, and John came, and he shared with us about the best date ever. And we thought about how can we please God as we pre prepare ourselves even before we start to date, also as we begin to date itself. And then last week, Tanner came, and he talked to us about the best marriage ever, a great picture provided by the prophet Hosea. And in an age when marriage, I think we can all agree, is an institution that's struggling, we learned that God designed the covenant of marriage. Why? To display his exclusive loyalty to us, his people. See, the scriptures tell us that if we build our marriages on the foundation of resilient covenant love, that we'll actually experience the blessings of covenant marriage by dwelling together in what Tanner called inseparable unity. And so this morning, I want to take us into the last part of our deep dive. We're going to talk about the best sex ever. And uh, in this series, if you look at it, you'll see and you recognize that there's a purpose around the way we arrange these topics. It's important that we talk about the best sex ever after we've spoken about friendship after we've spoken about singleness, after we've spoken about dating, and after we've even spoken about marriage. Not before, like I think some in our culture may encourage us to do. Now, if you haven't grasped some of the significant foundational truths that we've tried to talk about each step of the way, then you may struggle to grasp some of the truths that we're going to talk about this morning. My experience in pastoral counseling is that more often than not, the heart of the struggles around sex are struggles that tend to go back to a proper understanding and an implementation of the truths of friendship and singleness, dating and marriage. I'd like to give you an example. Recently, I was asked by a young woman who asked me if I would conduct her wedding ceremony to her fiancé. Now, neither one of them are followers of Jesus Christ, but I was in relationship with them, and they agreed to come to premarital counseling. And at one point in our sort of getting to know you first session, she blurted out to me, so Pastor John, when are we going to talk about sex? And I replied, well, do you plan on having sex when you're married? To which she said, well, of course. And I said, well, we're absolutely going to talk about sex. But before we get to that, there's important key biblical values that we need to talk about 
first, and I affirmed that that would come in time. This morning, as, I, as we bridge the gap between covenant, as Tanner covered it, and think about true intimacy through our sexuality, I'm going to share with you sort of a framework for thinking about that. In fact, there's a, a visual that I used with her just to help her grasp, and it's based on the work of some other people. But it moves from covenant to forgiveness to service and ultimately to intimacy. And I told her a truth at that time that I'm going to tell you today, that God designed sex that we may experience godly intimacy. So with that in mind, let's turn to the scriptures, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 18, and we'll read right through verse 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not afraid. And so we, before we begin this exploration, I'm just going to ask if you'll do me a favor, bow your heads, and just simply repeat after me as I pray. Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. This morning, I'm going to offer you three encouragements flowing out of this background scripture. Um, the first one is we have to, as believers, recognize that God has created us in his image, and he's created us as sexual beings. If we're to look back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that the triune God did what? He created man in his own image, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Male and female were created. And they would have qualities that would be reflective of God's nature in a manner, now listen, that would be different from the rest of God's created order. For they would have purpose. And they would have dominion. And they would experience relationship to God. And the Bible says they would experience relationship to each other. We are embodied. Genesis chapter 2. It's an expanded telling of the creation story in Genesis 1. And as we look at the, t at the uh, telling of this creation of man and woman in today's cre uh, scripture, we can see clearly that to be human is to be, in fact, a physical, biological creature. We can't deny that. Christians all view physical existence from the grandeur of the cosmos down to the very specific peculiarities of our bodies as the good creation of a benevolent God who cares for us. Physical existence, being a biological creature, it's not divine, but it is good. And we're more than just bodies. Uh, we are bodies, and, and we are going to live in a soul-body mix in, in someday in our glorified, even our resurrected bodies, and we should recognize that. We are, in fact, sexual beings. We can see that we are gendered in this scripture. Genesis declares that God's creation for gendered people is to be a divine purpose, with both sexes made in the image of God, and by extension, all of humanity. And he, too, declared this to be very good. And then finally, sex, we need to recognize, is fundamentally good. God, our creator commanded Adam and Eve to do what? 
he commanded them to multiply, to fill the earth with others. And the clear implication is that sexual consummation, the coming together of a male and female, is going to be part of that process. Man no longer is going to be formed by dust or is going to be pulled from the ribs of another human being. Sexual intercourse, sexual expression as part of God's design, it's going to be the fabric of who we are and our human experience. And it's going to fulfill God's command to do what? To extend his dominion over all of the earth. And that experience we know too, by peeking into Genesis 1, that was declared very good also. Sex is fundamentally good as declared by God himself. Remember now, the fall of man, the introduction of sin and brokenness into God's creation, it hasn't taken place yet. That story comes in chapter 3 of Genesis. And so that part of the story, it's going to have some grave implications when I share the third encouragement for us later today. For now, I want us to turn to encouragement number two. If everything that I just said, flowing out of our creation account, is true, then we are to experience true intimacy as a reflection of God's divine design and purpose. Now, if you were to go into Medford Square, a minute's walk next to the Dunkin's Donuts, and you were to stop 20 people, randomly, and you would ask them, does the Bible have anything useful to say about sex? I'd like you to think for a moment the kinds of answers that you think you might hear. You'd probably hear a variety of answers. I think some of them might be uncertainty. I think some of them might be actually quite negative. Why do you think they would respond that way? See, in our culture today, we are inundated with sexual talk, sexual imagery, sexual behavior, and honestly, sexual dysfunction. Our culture might talk about the mechanics of sex as its focus, but for us, we know the mechanics can be relevant, but it's not primary as Christians. As Christians, our first priority is to understand a biblical framework for properly thinking about sexual activity, because if we think correctly, we're more likely to then act correctly. Did you ever ask yourself in the Bible, is there a single text that you could go to that would capture every nuance um, or instruction about sexual activity? Have you ever asked yourself that question, felt the pressure to produce that? The answer is no. There is no one single text that covers every possible nuance. But the Bible does have an awful lot to say about how we conduct ourselves sexually. And so I think it's in view of the confusion that exists in our culture that I think it's important that we return to biblical basics and really declare the truths that are found in that page so that we can, in our own minds, navigate those waters if not for someone else, even for ourselves. So let me ask you a slightly different question. Does the Bible have anything to say about covenant? Okay, so you're nodding. Good, you were listening last week because Tanner shared that with us. Does the Bible have anything to say about forgiveness? Okay, some more, all right, some more people here. How about service, service to others? Scripture have anything to say about that? How about intimacy? Does the Bible have anything? Okay. If we see sex properly through the gospel truths of covenant and forgiveness and service and intimacy, then I think we have the foundation of truths to begin to apply to our sexual natures. So let me share a couple of them with you. Here's a truth. Uh, sex is about more than just biology. Throughout time, it's been understood that sexual intercourse is, in fact, a natural part and necessary process of bringing babies into life. We understand that there's a biological process that's necessary to connect a man and a woman. And one view in history has been that process is actually sort of a lower physical nature process, that it's rather distinct from our spiritual nature. We sort of divide a human in, into pieces. And while we recognize, okay, that's important for reproducing um, our, our race, sometimes sex can be viewed as dirty or degrading or not particularly 
uh, good. Another kind of view might be that uh, sex is just a natural appetite. Have you ever heard that? It's sort of like eating. Uh, we should feel free to satisfy any appetite we have whenever we experience the need. In fact, there are those that would say we should experience a wide range of the cuisine that sex may have to offer. Some people even go further and say limiting our sexual appetite can actually be unhealthy and actually bad for us. Well, um, those particular views I don't think are found in Scripture. I can remember as a boy, my father, um, in his ignorance I would say, he would gather his three sons around the kitchen table, usually during a time when he was drinking heavily, and he would do what our, my, myself and my brothers would call man talk. I don't know if you guys ever had man talk, but we had man talk in my house and growing up. And my father would go on about the gritty facts and the gritty details of what I would call biological sexual activity. And there was no context. There was no ability to understand the mechanics of what he was explaining because there was no values, no worldview, no way of looking at it properly. Today, I think one of my concerns is that sex really has just been genitalized. It's been biologized. It's been sort of reduced, reduced in a way that actually doesn't flow from the scriptures. In fact, we're told, for example, young people, you can listen to me carefully, we're told that because of your hormones, it's impossible for you to exercise any measure of self-control. And that's because you're viewed as strictly a biological being. And we know from the scriptures and the creation account that you're more than just biologic. And so I reject the idea that we're just animals who are subject to whatever our biology tells us we must do. Now, a real biblical understanding expands that narrow view to see what God really intended. And when we look back at Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that God made humans distinct from the rest of his creation and, and, and able and capable of having dominion, dominion even over our own biology. We are simply not animals. Here's another truth. Tana did a nice job about this last week. Sex is about commitment. Last week, we thought about biblical covenant. Covenant was referred to as a relationship that's bonded together by God through what? Through mutual promises. And in his commentary, I really like what John Stott had to say about Christian marriage covenant. It's ordained. Get that concept. It's ordained and sealed by God. It's preceded by a public leaving of parents. It's consummated in sexual union. It's issued in a permanent mutual supportive partnership. And usually it's not always, but crowned by the gift of children. And within covenant marriage, sexual consummation does what? It can serve as an oath and as a seal on the promises that were made. Sex, I would su submit to us, is a method that God invented in part to help us do what I call whole life entrustment. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us when, if we feel deeply connected to somebody else when we're physically intimate, there's something in our DNA as created by sexual beings that help move us towards greater connectedness when we're sexually intimate. And it's true that we might sometimes, if we're exercising sex before marriage um, or outside of marriage, we may maybe disable that mechanism a little bit or sometimes even numb that sense down a little bit. Um, as, a, as a way of moving away from being interwoven. And there's a danger to that. The danger is this. If you engage in sex outside of marriage, outside of the boundaries, you might find yourself beginning to experience the marital ties and the marital pull that God's designed into you, and that pull may not be returned by the other individual. And so rather than sort of experiencing true intimacy, you may find yourself over time bracing your heart against what is a natural progression that God has placed into us in order to avoid more pain and avoid more disappointment. And the irony of this, people, is that it may even steal from you the reinforcing effect of the covenant-making power of sexual intimacy. See, sex, I think, as part of God's economy, is a commitment apparatus and, and you're going to be short-circuiting how that works. It's been designed by God in part to strengthen covenant when it's reserved for a husband and a wife that are committed to each other for a lifetime till death do them part.
Let's think about another truth. Sex is about unity in community. As we read this morning in Genesis uh, 2.24, male and female uh, were to be, what, united in what we call one flesh. And at first glance, this term sort of looks like it might mean physical union, but it would be a mistake to really limit it just to that idea. Rather, theologians understand that when this term is used, it means more than just flesh. It means the entirety of the whole human being. So sexual joining within a covenant is a union between two people that's so profound that in a mysterious way they become a single united entity and every aspect of who they are starts to become glued as life comes together. To call marriage one flesh means that sex is understood both as a sign of that personal union, union but also as a mechanism, as a means to sort of ensure that and bring it together. So once you've given yourself in marriage, sex is a way, if you think about it, of actually maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. I want you to think about this example from the Old Testament because our God is a covenant-making God. And so you'll see as, uh, as he built covenant relationships with the nation of Israel and with other individuals, there would be times and opportunities where he would offer covenant renewal ceremonies where the people would come together and they'd look at the terms of the covenant and they'd read them and they'd think about them and they'd even reenact them and then they would celebrate them. They would sort of reaffirm themselves to them and that very act would strengthen their commitment to be faithful to the covenant that they had started. Sex between a husband and a wife is like a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a powerful God-created way to give your entire self to another person and to maintain the trajectory of that covenant intentions that were started from the beginning. And this act is so powerful that it's one of the reasons, not the only one, but it's one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul forbade Christians to have sex with prostitutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because there Paul decried the engagement of physical oneness absent anything else without all the other kinds of oneness that the sexual act should actually have. Sex with a prostitute, Paul said, was wrong, at least in part, because every sexual act is supposed to be a uniting act. It's as Tanner reminded us last week, a one-flesh relationship, marriage, is to be an inseparable unity when two people come together, physically, sexually, for procreation, reproduction, absolutely. For pleasure, we'll see later on, absolutely. But it's for so much more. It goes beyond the bedroom, and it goes into every aspect of life. It actually becomes the very definition of unity. Genesis, when we look at the second chapter that we read, makes it clear that as humans, we're fundamentally relational. Even though Adam lived in a perfect environment, God declared that what? It was not good that he be alone. And so God created a perfect partner, a complement to him in every way. Romantic love, such as we see in Adam and Eve, becomes an important way that the relational reality of actually being human is experienced. And that truth for them is still true for us today. And listen carefully. In a godly relationship, when that unity is disrupted by sin, and it will be, and when brokenness becomes apparent in our sexual lives, and there are times when that will occur, it will be gospel grace. It will be forgiveness found at the cross that can be extended from one spouse to the other that actually reunites what was separated and restores to wholeness that which is broken. As Christians, we would do well to remember to apply the truth of Ephesians 4.32, even in our spousal relationships. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. How about another truth? Sex, I would submit to you, is about giving. 
How can I serve you? See, in a healthy covenant relationship, it's really the wise question at the lips or in the minds of a wise spouse. Last week, we were challenged to think, ask ourselves, am I a marital consumer or a marital giver? Applied to the marriage bed, maybe we should wonder, is my focus, sexually speaking, on myself or is it on my spouse? And know that this point of view runs very counter to today's sexual ethic where, honestly, sex is viewed a little bit more as relating to your personal experience. Uh, Are you going to be yourself? Are you going to discover yourself? Are you going to be individually fulfilled? Are you going to be self-realized? You actually are the center of satisfaction, not your covenantal partner. But a wise person makes it his or her intention to become a student of the other person's needs, emotional, spiritual, and yes, even sexual. And that's going to require strong communication. But acquired over time, the act of giving actually brings satisfaction to the act of sexuality. In his commentary that I referred to earlier in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, John Stott uh, made a kind of a statement that caught me off guard. He said, sex... You ready for this? You want to know how to engage in sex? Sex has a God-given style. You know how to style? Here's the style. Honor. Sex has a God-given style. Honor. See, there's a world of difference between lust and love. Between dishonorable sexual practices to use a partner and true lovemaking, which honors the partner between selfish desire to possess and an unselfish desire to love and cherish and respect. And it's an important ethic to remember because especially if you were married before coming to save in faith in Christ or if you were sexually active before being married, you were probably exposed or participated in sex really for selfish advantage. And so it's critical that you understand this truth in a, in a very frank and authoritative and a practical way. Marriage, listen carefully, marriage is not a form of legalized lust. Think about that. Marriage is not a form of legalized lust. Rather, it is within the safety and the security of covenant love that you are now free to serve your partner. In a letter to the Corinthians at Corinth, The Apostle Paul confronted the sexual ethics of his day. And it's worth noting that the attitudes in Paul's time, his culture about women, uh, was not particularly high. In that era, wives were really seen as vessels for bearing children and, and vessels for preserving family lines. And if you had to decide how property was divided, it would run through the marriage uh, partnership that was in place. So wives were considered to be legally necessary. But for sexual satisfaction, it was quite common, actually, to seek satisfaction outside the bonds of marriage. And so with that as a backdrop, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians that were in Corinth, and he said, listen, for the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Paul, who ironically in our culture is so often accused of being sexually repressive, makes a radical departure from the ethic of his time. He changes the focus from one of authority and legal standing to one of what? Giving and surrender. Look at this scripture again. Focus in on it. Where's the focus of what he's talking about? Is it that the husband gets his needs met? Is it the wife focusing on herself? No, the focus is is for the husband is on the wife. And the focus for the wife is on the husband. And they, Paul says, are to take positions of givers, not takers. And so in the marriage bed as Christians, our first priority sexually must be to give. And in the act of giving, it's likely that the relationship itself is strengthened and that in the act of giving, love is communicated. 
This concept has, I think, some practical implications for today. It's one of the most common issues I run into when I'm uh, doing marriage counseling, and that is when one person wants and desires sex more often than the other. It's a common experience we run across. The frequency requirements seem to be not lining up. Think of it this way. If your main purpose in sex is giving pleasure, not getting pleasure, then a person who doesn't have as much of a sex drive physically can give to the other person as a gift. And as they provide that as a gift, it's a legitimate act of love that can, in fact, be received. How about this final truth? The man and his wife were what? They were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Now, when I was growing up, my grandparents, uh, Grampy and Nana Reddy, lived in Lynn, Massachusetts, in an old two-family and I remember as an eight-year-old boy standing at a pedestal sink in their bathroom. I was washing my hands. And underneath their sink was a iron grate. It was sort of a heating vent you probably for forced hot air. And I don't know why I thought this, but in my mind at eight years old, I thought that my grandparents actually had sex through the heating grate. I don't know why I thought that. Their bedroom was on one side, so I imagined my Nana being on one side, my Grampy being on the other, and having sex. Now, the funniest thing about it is, I was in my 20s washing my hands when I suddenly had this deja vu moment and felt like I was eight. I was shocked, right? You're laughing because we all recognize how absurd that is. There's no intimacy there. There's no physical intimacy no emotional intimacy, no spiritual intimacy. Not to say they couldn't even have sex in the winter because the heat would have to be on. So, <laughs> in my mind, it was all about shame. I couldn't imagine my Nana, who was ancient when I was a kid already, actually having physical intimacy with her life partner. They were married for decades. And certainly, I couldn't imagine her entering into pleasure and fulfillment and joy. Compare this silly illustration to what the Bible has to say. Proverbs 5 says, May your fountains be blessed and may you rejoice in your young wife, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you be captivated by her love always. The scripture has lots of these kinds of instances where God says, I've created you as embodied human beings, and part of the gift of the life that I've given you is the actual entering into and enjoyment of sexual pleasure. In fact, a whole book of the Bible is essentially a celebration of marital intimacy, Song of Solomon. Here's some, some verses from that, and tell me whether or not the Bible has a positive view of sexual relations between a man and a woman. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, chapter 1. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste, chapter 2. On my bed at night I sought whom my soul loves, chapter 3. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you, chapter 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Chapter 5. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Chapter 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Chapter 7. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Chapter 8. One of our deepest longings is to be close to someone. I think each person wants to connect with another in some tangible way to enter into that person's experience. And perhaps more than anything else in life, sex can sometimes give us the opportunity to probe the mystery of who someone else is, while at the same time, listen, revealing to that person who we are in a deep way. We become naked before one another, and not just physically, but emotionally, we become stripped as well. We allow a level of vulnerability and openness that honestly cannot necessarily be realized in any other way. And it's within the security 
of the established covenant and the freedom of a forgiving relationship and the communication of love through service that physical intimacy can flourish and then the mystery of the one flesh union becomes a greater reality for us and much of that the satisfaction of our souls. It's designed by God to be the culmination of an expression of relationship where we're growing in love. It's trust-filled. It's open. It's safe. It's vulnerable. It's loving. It's passionate. And this is to be the kind of intimacy that God has designed for us so that it will reinforce the covenant commitment that was the anchor at the beginning of our relationship to begin with. Here's my third and final encouragement. Because of how awesome all of what I just shared with you is, we are to reject sexual temptation on our journey of being sanctified. You see, by God's design, sex does have boundaries, and those boundaries are for our best interest. Now, I honestly, when I was given this topic a few months ago, did not want to just issue a list of prohibitions around sexual activity, but I think it's important we acknowledge that, that they do exist. The scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, make it clear that there are boundaries to expression, and, and some of those boundaries are boundaries around physical experience. So, for example, a fornication is, is defined broadly as voluntary sexual intimacy between persons that aren't married to each other. Adultery is voluntary sexual intimacy between a married person and someone who's not their lawful spouse. That's, that's what the scriptures teach. That's what it says. And so we need to recognize that. And there's all kinds of other instances that I'm not going to go into today. But if we just stop there, I think we probably will not fulfill the teaching of the scripture. Because there's also boundaries of mental expression. Jesus challenged the teachers of his time who were just content to measure their righteousness just by avoiding certain external boundaries. These words are familiar to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has done what? Already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, we can stay within the boundaries, the external boundaries of proper sexual behavior and still violate God's sexual boundaries in our mind and be declared guilty. How about boundaries that are within the boundary of marriage? Because I just kind of gave you a picture of that. Are there times when sexual sin can actually occur within the context of marriage? And I would say, yeah, yes, there is. What if a spouse wrongfully uses or manipulates matters in a sexual way? So for example, what if somebody uses uh, sexual withholding as a weapon within their marriage? Does that ever happen? Have you ever heard of that happening? Well, of course, that's possible. What if a spouse abuses the other by pressing, pushing, and um, overruling personal convictions that are not necessarily uh, inappropriate? And, and what if one spouse uses physical strength or any other position of power to sort of coerce the other individual? Just because you're married doesn't mean you can't step outside of the boundaries of what's right in God's economy. Sex isn't just about giving in to our bodily impulses, but it finds fulfillment in controlling ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, and thereby we avoid taking advantage of other people. And if it certainly, it certainly should start with the way that we conduct ourselves with our spouses and then be extended to anybody else that we come in contact with. Now, oftentimes when I'm talking to, uh, especially young people, uh, I'll, I'll sort of review these boundaries, and then I, I'll hear them say, well, wait a second, John. What right does God have to put restrictions on my body? And actually, you may be asking yourself that. And my first instinct is to sort of appeal to the idea that, let's see, uh, I don't know, uh, because he's God. The scriptures teach that he's all-powerful. He's the ruler of the universe. He's holy. He, he's a king. Like any king, he has the right to issue his decrees and expect that they're obeyed. It's kind of like, well, my father used to do with me just because I said so, and that would be the end of the debate. But I think if we consider the other side of the coin of who God is, if we go back to that Genesis account that we looked at earlier, he's our creator. He's our designer. He's the expert on how we were formed. 
He knows how we work best. He, in fact, wrote the operating manual on human beings. He knows what makes us tick. He assembled us. And he knows how we thrive and where we do best. He knows, and I think if we're honest, experience tells us that true freedom and true fulfillment and true intimacy, it lies within the boundaries that he actually has established. And contrary to popular belief today, uh, these sexual boundaries have not been set because God is a party pooper, but because he actually desires that we experience the fullness of intimacy as he's designed it inside of us. And so I would submit to you that sex outside of godly boundaries, it'll come with a great loss. And you may ask yourself, why does any sexual activity outside of God's instructions destroy intimacy? Well, our sexual longings, they're grounded in our good capacities for love and union and pleasure, but often these longings are tainted with selfishness. For we're broken, and we can be deceitful, and sometimes we can even be twisted. And I think this is why sometimes we experience a sense of conflict within our sexuality, because we can know the beauty of sexual intimacy, we can understand its potential, but we can also sort of struggle with the flip side of sexual immorality. So let's just be clear for our, for our sake this morning. Any sexual activity, whether it's physical or mental, inside the bounds and outside the bounds of marriage, if it's outside of God's created design of one man, one woman, and a covenant commitment of marriage, that is sexual sin. And sexual sin sometimes more than other sin, can create chaos in our relationships with God and our relationships with other people and even in our relationships to ourselves. Because if we're not careful, sexual sin, the struggles and the mistakes and the experiences, they can start to begin to define who we are. Your identity as a child of God in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, becomes confused in your mind. And so to avoid confrontation with the truth of sexual sin, many times we'll enter into what I consider to be a spiritual game of hide and seek. We hide our actions, we hide our desires, while we still try to fulfill them. And at the same time, we begin to hide from other people. And ultimately, out of guilt, I think, we begin to hide from God, who is the one who's seeking to actually heal us and make us whole. You see, the real lie behind sexual sin is this. We believe that we can get on our own something better than what God has already given to us. He's given us boundaries in scripture for our sexuality, and the lie of our culture today is that we can create a better life, that we can live outside those boundaries, but we know that doing that brings more pain than pleasure, more isolation than intimacy. It affirms the truth of Proverbs 16. There is a path before each person that seems right, but what does it end in? It ends in death. So let's keep in mind what the gospel picture of true intimacy is. What happens as you progress towards intimacy? In establishing covenant, it produces security. In giving forgiveness, it releases freedom. In offering service, it communicates what? Love. In experiencing intimacy, it strengthens the covenant. And how do you disrupt in intimacy? Well, let's take a look at that. Covenant faithfulness becomes replaced by what? Unfaithfulness and insecurity. Forgiveness and freedom, it gets replaced by no mercy and imprisonment. Service and love, it gets replaced by selfishness and self-indulgence. And intimacy, here's the irony of it, it gets replaced by isolation. Sexual intimacy involves sanctification. What do you do if you're falling short in sexual integrity and sexual health? How do you, how do you cross that gap? As followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we're under construction 
It's one thing to discover the truths about our sexual nature. It's another to have that sexual nature conformed as an act of worship to God. Paul reminded us in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that as we submit ourselves to God, even our sexual selves, he transforms us by what? His indwelling spirit as we obey his revealed will and we abide in relationship with him. And here's the great part. When we do that, he actually receives that effort as an act of worship. Freedom, it's not the absence of the struggle, but knowing that your struggle's not in vain. Think of it this way. This is a word to, to the church. What should our response be to those who cross the boundaries of God's design for sex? And I tell you, it should be the same response that Jesus would have, were his followers. Today's not about condemnation, but it's about the truth of Scripture. It's about freedom that's found in the struggle for sexual purity and integrity. It's what I would call sanctified sex. Romans 3.23 teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even in our sexual lives. And the Christian response to those struggling with sexual sin is Christ-centered compassion. And this is not, listen, this is not a careless compassion. Careless compassion puts happiness above healing. It's a compassion that moves a person towards wholeness, even sexual wholeness. And so Jesus is our model. Over and over again, we see him in the Gospels moving towards those who are caught in some form of sexual confusion and sexual sin. And he does what? He calls them to a renewed covenant with their heavenly father. How? Through grace and through service, like we've talked about. And what's the result? Intimacy with God the Father. And what's their personal result? Their hunger is met and their thirst is satisfied. And so that has implications for you and I. It's how we are to respond anytime we meet someone who's trapped in, outside of God's sexual boundaries. Um, I, my prayer is that Redemption Hill Church is a place where broken people can come and experience the compassion of Christ. And like Jesus, our compassion can't be careless compassion. We need to respond with mercy and we need to respond with support, but we need to call people to move forward, to go and to sin no more. And so our reality is that we need to demonstrate mercy, not judgment, support, not shunning, walk beside not run away and offer a hand rather than pointing a finger. And with God's grace, that's my prayer for us gathered here at Redemption Hill Church. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward to the platform with a couple of final thoughts. This morning, it was an impossible task to cover every aspect of sex and sexuality in about 40 minutes. I really did want to resist sometimes the easy listing of what we can and we can't do. That's, that's easy. I wanted us to think about a framework that we can use as followers of Christ, flowing out of the scriptures, so that we can navigate a lot of the difficult questions that we have in all of our relationships. I realize today that there's a wide range, even in this auditorium, of life experiences. Some of you are single, some of you are married, blended, divorced, divorced twice, remarried, survivors of sexual assault, cohabiting, widowed. And in your personal situation, whatever it may be, you may be asking yourself, okay, what's next? And, and I just would like to remind you and remind myself that in every circumstance of life comes new opportunities to apply the gospel to our sexual situation. There's chances to understand purity and integrity, satisfaction and wholeness. And as I shared earlier, that visual picture of moving towards true intimacy, as we move from covenant through forgiveness and through service and into intimacy, we actually reinforce the covenant so we are more able to forgive, so we can move out in greater service, so we can experience more intimacy, so the covenant becomes stronger, so that we're more forgiving. And do you see that as we apply the gospel into whatever sexual situation we face, the grace that it offers us. And so here's the question that I would just leave you with. In view of such a great and loving God, in your sexuality, in mine, what will please our Heavenly Father the most? In your sexuality and in mine, what will please our Heavenly Father the one who created us, embodied us, 
made us sexual beings and declared sex to be good. What will that look like? To assist you in answering the question, there's a couple of things you can do even today. So, for example, right at the end of the sermon, in about one minute, I'm going to pray that, that God will grant you more understanding, joy, and obedience. So your first act can be to bow your head and to submit yourself to that prayer. After the offering, you could check off your Connect card, and you could ask uh, to meet with a pastor, because maybe this stimulated a question in your mind that you, need to, you want to have some godly counsel about. Pop it in. After the service, there's a ton of resources over at our resource table. Wander over there. See if there isn't a resource that will begin to help you wrestle. Tonight, we're going to have you guys heard the best coffee house ever. And so we're going to answer some, some tough questions and some uh, questions that uh, you've asked us. Maybe even later this week, you'll go to a community group because in our community groups, we're going to be talking about this issue in 10 different places over the course of the next week. There's just so much more that you can do. My thing is, don't hesitate to just stop, but continue the momentum that you've experienced. See, from the beginning of creation, God designed sex. Why? That we might experience godly intimacy. So let's just call upon him as we seek to grow in intimacy with him and intimacy with each other. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we do recognize that you created us in your image, that you've made us sexual beings, and, and that we're capable of sanctified sexual experiences. And so, Father, we start by thanking you for your good gifts. And we seek to experience true intimacy as a reflection of your design and your purposes for our sexual experiences. We ask for your help while we do that. Lord, we do come before you and we do... We, we reject sexual temptation, whether it's physical or mental, outside our marriages, inside our marriages. As we travel through life, help us, Father, we ask, to be more sanctified and forgive us for when we fall. And see, we pray these prayers, Father, in full confidence that the work you've begun in each one of us is a work that you will be faithful to complete, for it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.